We are going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to chapter 8, uh, we'll begin reading in verse 40 in just a moment. Uh, but we will be in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to deal with a very loaded and eventful and a heavy story this morning. Now, I'd like to go ahead and preface this message with this by acknowledging for many people who are here in person or watching online, this may be a very heavy and difficult topic to talk about this morning. We're going to be talking a little bit about shame. We're going to be talking about shame. We're going to see how shame had ruined and controlled a woman's life and then how the gospel changed everything for her. And there's a reason that shame is sometimes referred to as a soul-eating emotion. It's because it is devastating to deal with. It's something that uh, people carry their entire lives. And sometimes people carry shame because of actions and things that they did, but sometimes it's totally out of their control. And maybe there was a traumatic experience somebody had at, as a kid, or they experienced some form of abuse or uh, any kind of uh, traumatic experience like that. Now, I've spent some time with uh, teenagers here um, at Clarksburg Baptist Church and as well as at my old job at Highland Clarksburg. And I have spent some time with teens who carry shame based on things that they did not even decide for themselves. But that shame was crippling and it was heavy and it controlled them. So I want you to ask yourselves right now. I'm not asking anybody to raise your hands, but uh, more asking you to do some self-inflection. Have you ever experienced this emotion of shame? Has shame ever controlled you? Has shame ever silenced you? Have you ever dealt with shame? Most of us can think of something, whether it be just some silly mistake that we made one time that we felt shameful about, or maybe it is something so much deeper in your life. Maybe you're already kind of going back to this experience that you had that you've never really been able to shake off. Shame may be difficult for some of you to talk about. This could be something you carried in with you this morning. It could be something that you carry on your back every single day. And shame could have a really strong handle on some people's lives this morning who are here. But what is shame, though? Most people think shame is really just some extreme form of guilt. But it is really so much different than that. Guilt and shame are not the same thing. See, shame definitely can produce guilt, but shame is typically a much deeper emotion than guilt is. And it controls us. It changes our identity. When you experience guilt in your life, the voice of guilt may say, you did something bad. And maybe you feel dirty about something you did. You might feel conviction over that. Shame, on the other hand, says you are something bad. You are dirty and worthless and unlovable. Guilt says you made a mistake, but shame says you are the mistake. Guilt attacks what you did, but shame attacks who you are. Shame attacks the fibers of your identity. I heard of a Christian counselor once who uh, dealt with clients who experienced intense forms of shame. And he explained the difference between shame and guilt this way. He said, you can think of guilt as a stain on a shirt. It can be washed out, but it's usually temporary. Shame is more like a disfigured face. Even though it isn't your fault, you feel defective. 
You feel damaged. You feel dirty and unlovable, and you're afraid to show yourself. Ed Welch defines shame this way. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed, unacceptable, and unworthy of love because of something you've done, something done to you, or something associated with you. So shame isn't always because of the decisions that we make. The woman, the woman we're going to read about this morning in the Gospel of Luke chapter 8 had experienced a deep level of shame for 12 years of her life. So I want you to imagine spending 12 whole years being avoided, rejected, unwanted, because this was the reality for the woman we're going to look at today. The Bible says that she had a severe and a rare medical condition and had been bleeding for 12 years in a constant state of uh, menstruation. And the condition she suffered was incurable. And this was told to us by Luke, who was an actual physician. So we can trust that this was a big deal. This was a scarring disease that this woman had. And one thing I love about this story is that her encounter with Jesus is actually a story within a story. The story doesn't even start with her as the focus. And what you're going to find is that Jesus' business seemed to have nothing to do with her until she forced her way in to this story. So let's start reading here in verse 40. We're going to read through 48 if you're following along. It says, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman who was there had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of Jesus' cloak. And immediately, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Thanks, Captain Obvious. Hey, Peter rocks, right? But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So Jesus had plans to go and heal Jairus' daughter, but it wouldn't stop him from healing this sick woman and giving her a brand new identity. She pressed her way through this crowd. She tried her hardest not to be noticed as she looked to almost sort of steal this miracle from Jesus. She wouldn't have been accepted if anybody had seen her. I imagine she walked through, covered up, trying not to draw any attention. She would have wanted to be unseen, under the radar, because according to Jewish customs and the law, she would have been considered ceremonially unclean. Nobody would want to be even anywhere near her. This means for 12 years, she had seen very little human interaction. She'd not been touched once. Nobody wanted to be her friend. Nobody cared to uh, step in and advocate for her. 
When people saw this woman, they would turn in disgust. They would run the other way, making sure they didn't touch her and become unclean and defiled themselves. Twelve years. Twelve years. Hopeless. Forgotten. Rejected. But she pushed her way to Jesus in one last hope of being healed and being loved again and being accepted. The Bible says that she reached out and she touched the edge of Jesus' cloak. In the original translations, a word was used that literally meant to clutch and pull like you would on a rope. I love the picture that uh, J.D. Greer paints by this. He said it was like she pulled, she clutched and pulled on the rope to a bell. And that healing just rang out of Jesus into her life. She had been living in a chronic state of shame. But in her encounter with Jesus, she found healing. She found a new name. She found an identity. If you're taking notes this morning, I'd love for us to unpack this together with three main points. The first one being this. Jesus called her daughter. Jesus called her daughter. Now, I think it's intentional here that Luke never once includes the actual name of this woman. We don't know what her name was. It's likely that uh, the people living around her didn't know her name either. Before being healed, her only sense of identity would have been that sick woman, that unclean filth over there. But Jesus healed her and welcomed her with the most gentle and loving arms in all of the universe. And he could have called her by name. Jesus would have known that. But instead, he skipped right ahead to the sweet names. He would call her by one of the sweetest, most loving, endearing terms possible. He looked her in the eyes and said, you are my daughter. By speaking out this new identity. Jesus said, it doesn't matter what your shame has declared over you. These last 12 years, what matters is what I declare over you. And I call you my daughter who is loved and accepted by me. See, this sick woman had all the faith in the world that Jesus could bring her all of the healing that she needed. The healing she'd been looking for for 12 years. And what she got in return was also a new name. It would uh, forever be greater than any other name she'd been called. The same is true of you this morning. If you are in Christ, it matters no longer what the shame in your life says. It matters no more what the voice of the enemy declares you to be. Defective, inadequate, unlovable. Whatever that word is for you. If you are in Christ, he declares a new identity over you. You are his son. You are his daughter. You are loved. You are accepted. There is more significance to Jesus calling her his daughter as well. Something we can't miss here. It's so important. We've got to remember there are two events going on here. Right? Jesus was on his way to tend to this sick daughter of Jairus and encountered this sick woman on the way. Now, I want us to look at the contrast of these two people involved. Jairus was concerned. He was a concerned and loving father who was able to plead the case of his 12-year-old daughter. He was able to advocate for her. He was able to go and find help for her. He loved his daughter, and he wanted to see her healed. 
For 12 years, this young girl lived with a father who loved her, who cared for her, who would do anything for her. Meanwhile, the woman with the issue of blood had no father, no friend, no advocate, nobody to plead on her behalf of her problems. But Jesus pled the case of the woman who had no father, no loved one. He pled for her over the, uh, or no one to plead for her over the last 12 years. And Jesus looks her in the eye and says, you are my precious daughter. When you realize the love that the father has for you as a precious son or daughter, you realize you now have an advocate whose love for you is deeper than the ocean and more vast than the universe itself. Our second point today, Jesus loves the unlovable. Jesus loves the unlovable. Another way of saying this that may resonate with you a little bit better is that Jesus loves those that we struggle to love. Jesus loves the people that we struggle to love. The people who would be rejected by everyone else, despised, forgotten about, thrown in the trash. Jesus loves those people deeply. That person you're thinking of right now that has nobody on their side, nobody in their corner, nobody to love and support them. Jesus loves them too. Jesus loves the outcast. He's the friend of the loner. He loves that person intimately, deeply. And this is great news for us because guess what? The truth is we are all outcasts. Maybe you don't feel like an outcast. You've got your circle of friends. Maybe you were popular in high school and you feel pretty good about yourself. But the truth is, outside of the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you were an outcast that could never earn God's love or approval. The gospel says that you and I are sinners and therefore estranged by God, out of touch with him, unable to bridge that gap that sin caused. Our sin separates us from God, makes it impossible to have a relationship with him based on our works. But God sent his son to take the weight of our sin and our shame upon himself so that we could be restored into a relationship with him. Your sin made your heart ugly, unlovable, despicable. But God looks at you and says, I still choose that one. I love you. I want to declare that you are my son. You are my daughter. I want to share a story with you. I heard uh, from a pastor as I was studying for this. Uh, he shared a story about a couple that he was um, uh, counseling, working through, who were working to, um, through the process of adoption. Okay, they, they wanted to adopt so bad they were unable to have children. And all they wanted was to adopt a child. He said, finally, they got that call. They got that call. Hey, we've, we've got a kid for you. There's a pregnant woman who does not want to keep this kid. And if you say yes, we'll have you lined up. This is going to be your baby. They were so excited. And for months, they were just filled with joy, knowing in just a short while, they were going to get to experience loving this child. A couple months before um, the pregnancy was over, they got a call from one of the doctors. They got a call from the adoption agency, and they said, hey, 
We've just learned there are going to be some uh, very severe uh, medical complications involved with this baby. We don't know the extent of it, but uh, it is likely that this is not going to be a normal uh, case. This kid is going to require a lot of attention their entire life. There's going to be some defects, some disfigurements, and some issues that you're going to have to work through. Now, what they told this couple is, hey, if you want to back out, there's no shame in that. It's fine. Not everybody is equipped to deal with this. And let me assure you right now, everybody who's listening, it is okay to say, I am not equipped to deal with this issue. This was going to be a a situation where they could have eased out and said, you know what, it's probably not uh, best that we take this on. But they decided, you know what, we're going to pray about it. We're going to think about this for a little while. Uh, What uh, this pastor says is that this woman... Right after this conversation, she goes to bed that night and she has this dream. And I want you guys to imagine this scene that was going on in her head. If it helps to close your eyes, go ahead and do it. I tell you guys to close your eyes all the time when I'm preaching. It just, it helps me, okay? It helps me to understand things. But, uh, this woman, she's having this dream and she's in this giant stadium filled with people. And what's happening in this dream is these people keep bringing children out into the middle of the stadium. And every time they do it, somebody puts their hand up and says, I want that one. Then they bring out the next kid. Somebody's hand goes up. I want that one. Bring out the next kid. I want that one. People are shooting their hands up everywhere saying, yes, 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 let me take that one. When all of a sudden, a child is brought out, disfigured, broken, defective, hurting, unable to speak, all kinds of issues, and the stadium gets uh, eerily silent. And what she said is, uh, in this dream, she started to look as far as she could, and she started to look really close. And all of a sudden, she could realize this face was her own face. It was her. It was her, the one that nobody wanted. And she says, just as she recognized this in the dream, she hears a voice that says, I want that one. She turns around and it's Jesus. Now this uh, did um, motivate them and compel them to uh, move forward with this adoption, which was a really cool thing. But what she realizes, hey, I was broken. I was an outcast. I was defective. And Jesus still wanted me. The same is true of you no matter how broken you are. No matter how much baggage you think is coming with you, no matter how much shame you have in your life, Jesus still loves you. Jesus loves that outcast, the one that nobody else wants. That should motivate us to love them as well. Jesus loves the unlovable, the messed up, the disfigured heart filled with sin and shame. And he wants to bring them healing and he wants to bring them a brand new identity. Our third point actually has three points with it, if you're taking notes. Uh, This comes from uh, Brene Brown, who is uh, an expert in dealing with shame. She says, the person held captive by shame needs three things that I want us to look at today. The first one is this, that they need to have their story heard. They need to have their story heard. Speak out about your shame and stop letting it simply speak to you. There's a community of people around you here. If that's you this morning, 
that wants to bear those burdens with you. You don't have to experience that alone. There are people who want to hear your story, to love you unconditionally. Victims of shame need to have their story heard. The second thing they need to hear, they need to have their head lifted. They need to have their head lifted. The same way that Jesus turned to lift the head of this woman who was filled with shame, she was embarrassed. Jesus will lift your head as well. David calls uh, God in Psalm 3, the lifter of my head. So when shame has you staring at the ground, as those voices inside declare you to be unwanted, unlovable, unworthy, unimportant, disfigured, Jesus declares a different identity over you as he lifts your head and says, you are my son, you are my daughter, I accept and I love you. You are a son and daughter of the king. God is so faithful to lift our heads when they feel far too heavy. When the burden is too much to bear. When shame cripples and controls you. When we allow the voice of shame to seep down into our hearts. We serve a God who delights in lifting your head, picking it up, and declares your true identity over you. The third thing that Brene Brown says is the victim of shame needs to be restored to a loving community. Victims of shame need people surrounding them that love them, a place where they can belong again. Now, I have to imagine this woman was uh, soon welcomed back into a loving community as she wore this new identity as a daughter of Christ, someone who was healed, someone who was loved. I guarantee she had confidence in the early church. Some scholars actually assume that uh, this is uh, due to Luke's intentionality, making sure that this story was heard. It's likely she was restored to the community around her and was maybe even a vital part of the early church. If you've been affected by shame, you need to be restored into a loving community. And I believe you can find that here within the church. We cannot neglect this call to community. All of us have a desire deep down inside of us to belong somewhere. And outside of all the gimmicks and, and whatever else we can put out there, we're all just looking for a place to belong. We have a craving for community, for people to lean on, for people to love us, for people to do life together. Don't let shame convince you that you can't be loved, you can't be accepted by a community like this. We need this. The band can go ahead and come up as we come to a close this morning. I believe that this is a heavy thing for some of you to deal with. For some of you who are watching online, for some of you who are sitting here. For some of you, there is uh, something dark inside of you, maybe a secret that nobody else knows about. Something that's happened to you. Something that haunts you every single day and instills this shame in your life. Shame has potentially been this loud, screaming voice in your life that's kept you from the arms of the Father who loves you. 
Don't listen to that voice anymore. There is a greater voice that desires to lift your head and call you a son or a daughter of the king. That acceptance is given to us freely based not on what you can do, not on how impressive and great you are, but by what Jesus has done in your place. If you are a child of the king, shame has no place in your life. It has no place. It should have no voice. Because Jesus declares this greater identity over you. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are chosen. You are accepted. You are loved by the creator of the universe. If I could have everybody close your eyes and bow your heads this morning. I want to challenge you right now to just respond to the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's some uh, deep-seated shame in your life that you've never dealt with, that you've been carrying when you shouldn't. Maybe your head is uh, face to the ground. You're afraid to look around. You're afraid to see who's watching you, who's looking. We have a God who is the lifter of our heads who desires to accept you, to bring you in, and to declare this new identity over you. The gospel is that we were unlovable. We were uh, riddled with sin and problems and issues, and we were unable to be accepted by God on our own. But the gospel says that God didn't leave us in that place. Jesus Christ stepped down from heaven, put on flesh to dwell with us, to feel pain, to feel our emotions, to be tempted, to be tried, to be beaten. And he lived the perfect life that we could not live. And then he went on to die the death that we deserved. That's the gospel. That's Jesus in my place. God did this to declare a new identity over us. So if you accept Jesus, if you make him the Lord of your life, you can be a son or a daughter of the king. Maybe you've never made that decision. You can do that this morning. Say, I'm tired of listening to the voices of shame. I'm tired of being trapped in my sin. God, I give it to you. I surrender. I'm done trying. I want to rest in your finished work. You can begin a relationship with Jesus this morning. I want to lead you in a prayer. It's not a magic prayer. You have to recite word for word. But you can say something like this from your heart to God. You can say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know because of my sin, I deserve hell. I deserve separation from you. But I believe you love me so much. You sent your son Jesus to die in my place. I'm resting in that. I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you, Jesus. Be the Lord of my life. If you made a decision to follow Jesus this morning, 
he decided to finally nail that down, to stop uh, living in your shame, to embrace that new identity. We want to celebrate that with you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything embarrassing. I'd just love for you to take that connection card and write down, I chose Jesus this morning. I chose that new identity. I chose to rest in the finished work of Jesus. Or you could shoot us a text, shoot us an email. Pastor Phil or myself, we would love to talk to you about that decision and uh, what's next for you. As we continue to worship, respond to the Spirit however He leads you. In prayer, in meditation, in singing, in praise, whatever that looks like for you.